electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hey guys, Kelly Evans here. I want to give you a heads up about another CNBC podcast, Cult Squawk Pod. If you enjoyed the exchange, you'll definitely enjoy Squawk Pod too. It's some of the best of what you can expect from the team here at CNBC, including newsmaking interviews, analysis, and debate. This week, my friend Becky Quick interviews the Oracle of Omaha himself, Warren Buffett. And it's all part of a must-hear special week of episodes on the podcast. I'm sharing with you today's episode now, but be sure to subscribe to Squawk Pod today. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, Wall Street weathered its worst day in two years, but Mohammed El Arian urges investors to show restraint. Continue to resist as hard as that is to simply buy the dip because it has worked in the past. Shipping pains. The head of the Port of Los Angeles gauges fallout as the coronavirus spreads. What we're seeing right now is 40 canceled sailings, and that would amount to about 25% of our normal ship calls during this time post-Lunar New Year. And Warren Buffett, one of the world's most famous investors on when you know it's too risky to jump in. You're often quoted as saying that you don't know who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. You get the sense with a high tide right now that there's a lot of skinny... Well, we're allowing people to borrow money on much weaker terms than we were five or ten years ago. You can hear more of Becky Quick's thoughts only on this podcast. He's pretty biblical when it comes to (laughs) how he views the world. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Tuesday, February 25th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Our guest host is Surat Sethi from Douglas C. Lane and Associates. Good to see you this morning. Glad to have you with us. First up on today's podcast, coming back from a rough trading day. Wall Street woke up with a black eye this Tuesday morning. Maybe a couple black eyes this morning. That was after Wall Street's biggest one-day loss in two years. The Dow Jones Industrial Average saw its worst day since February of 2018. The S&P 500, same deal. Monday was the second worst day for that index ever. The aggregate market loss on Monday totaled $927 billion, pushing both the Dow and the S&P into negative territory for 20 About a month after the initial coronavirus outbreak, Mohamed El Arian told us that he would advise resisting the temptation to buy the initial coronavirus dip. That was back on February 3rd. The coronavirus is different. It is big. It's going to paralyze China. It's going to cascade throughout the global economy. And importantly, it cannot be counted, as Michel just noted, by central bank policies. So I think we should pay more attention to this and we should 
try and resist our inclination to buy the dip. Joining us now on the Squawk Newsline is Mohamed Al Arian, Allianz Chief Economic Advisor. And Mohamed, reflecting back on those comments, they were prescient at the time. There's still a lot we don't know about this virus. What, what would you tell people at this point in terms of the stock market? I would say continue to resist as hard as that is to simply buy the dip because it has worked in the past. As you say, Becky, there are uncertainties. There are three uncertainties. One is the short-term uncertainties. How quickly can we contain this virus? How quickly can we reverse the economic effects? Second, the longer-term uncertainty. What does it do to China's development process? What does it do to the process of deglobalization? And finally, there's a whole host of uncertainties related to initial conditions. The global economy wasn't in a great place to begin with, and markets had been decoupled in terms of valuations um, from fundamentals. So I think there's a lot of uncertainties out there. I understand the inclination to buy on the dip. I understand that the path of least resistance for this market is to bounce up, because that's what it's been conditioned to do. But I stress this is different. Everything comes down to price, though, correct, Mohammed? I mean, I would assume there would be some point when you would say it's okay to buy on the dip. Is that a 10% pullback, 15% pullback? Is there a point where you say, okay, there, there has to be some value here, and now we've reached panic levels? Yes, of course. I mean, you know, valuations matter a great deal. Remember, the, the consensus recommendation was not only buy on the dip, but buy the markets that have lagged, buy emerging markets. So let's look what has happened. Since the highs, um, we are in the U.S., we are 5%. Emerging markets are up 10%. So, yes, there'll come a time not only to buy the dip, but there'll buy, come a time to buy the markets that have lagged, just not at these valuations yet. Mohammed, what uh, I mean, these, these are such difficult things to track. You're an incredible economist, but we're all trying to figure out now what the epidemiology is of this virus, what countries are doing behind the scenes, what the political implications are. How, how do you try and sum this up, or do you just stay out of it and say it's too complicated right now? No, I do a lot of, a lot of research. I talk to lots of people. Um, the medical profession will caution you, will tell you we don't quite understand this virus yet. There's lots of uncertainties. Um, I look at the economics. We're having this cascading economic stop. Ask, ask Joe, will he go on holiday to Italy again now? No, he's going to wait. So we're going to have a lot of risk aversion on the part of economic actors. Um, it's going to take time, Becky. So, yes, there's so many uncertainties. And what you've got to do is collect data and try to put a picture together. And that picture is very murky right now. WHO, the World Health Organization, is still saying right now this is not a pandemic. But when you have outbreaks that we're watching in Italy, in Iran, in South Korea, and now the threat level in Korea has been raised to red. What does that mean? Do you think there should be a situation where we are shutting down travel between countries? And that's, that's the deglobalization question. Um, and that question is out there. We, we've already, the U.S. issued a travel alert on Korea today. So, you know, people are thinking about, about this. It is a deglobalization shock, and unlike an economic, a financial sudden stop, economic sudden stops are hard to restart. Um, I've seen it because I worked on small developing countries where these things happen. They don't tend to happen in the second largest economy in the world. So, so this is consequential, um, and it's, we're going to learn a lot. I, I would just caution there's so much uncertainty right now. 
that if you're going to buy this dip, make sure you focus on companies with very strong balance sheets, a business model that's robust enough to um, a global recession, and the agility to move quickly. You know, there are companies that are going to make sense, that are going to get hit like others, but don't deserve to be hit. But it's a very selective game. It's not going out and buying the indices, and especially not the indices in the more vulnerable economies. But uh, when you look forward, what are some of the things you're looking for as indications that things are stabilizing or going to get better? Well, what are a couple of things that we should look for that, that we haven't seen yet? So first, understanding of what exactly is this virus and how do you contain it? Um, we haven't gotten there yet. So, so basic medical information. Secondly, the confidence of people to re-engage. Look at China. The government is ordering people back to work and we're getting 20 to 30% uh, of the people turning up. So, so there's a massive risk aversion because this is unknown. The behavioral scientists will tell you that when you shock us with something that takes us out of our comfort zone, it takes time to get back to normal activity. So that's the second thing I'm going to look at. And then the third thing I'm going to look at is how much damage have we created to companies that were vulnerable. Mohammed, we want to thank you for your time. We always appreciate talking to you, and we will see you again very soon. Thank you, Becky. Some breaking news just in from MasterCard. The company says that chief product officer Michael Meebach is going to become the new CEO next January 1st. The current CEO, Ajay Banga, is going to be transitioning to the role of executive chairman at that time. Of course, we should point out uh, during Ajay's tenure, that stock has increased more than 14-fold. Prior to assuming the CEO role, Meebach is going to become the president of MasterCard, and that's going to be happening on March 1st. All of this comes, of course, just a day after MasterCard warned that its revenue could take a 2 to 3% hit this quarter because of the coronavirus. Some of the things that they talked about in that release last night uh, that concerned the markets is not only a slowdown in terms of cross-border uh, travel that's taking place, but also cross-border e-commerce, people being afraid to even buy things and have it shipped here as well. Um, you know, you know the story of Ajay Bengal well. The Ajay story is an amazing story. I mean, his own personal story is an amazing story, but what's happened to MasterCard over these years is an amazing story. Having said that, it, it, the, the MasterCard story is also a bit of a visa story, a bit of a financial tech payment story. Across the board, you can see the success of all of those stocks uh, throughout that period. But on a relative basis, even to Amex, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to say there's something going on here. Uh, and they did a remarkable, remarkable job. And we'll see whether... Uh, uh, the successor. That's interesting. This is a long transition time, and that yep. probably will give um, some. Is, that will make shareholders look at this probably positively. The idea that this is not happening instantaneously, and that Ajay Banga is going to right. be sticking around afterwards. Amazon bringing its cashierless store concept to a bigger stage. The company set to open Amazon Go Grocery in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood today. It has about four times the space as the smaller Amazon Go convenience store and is targeting customers in residential areas. As with Amazon Go, no cashiers or checkout lines at all. You need the app. I have it. I've been to the, the, the other one. Um, I haven't been to this one, obviously, yet, but uh, it's pretty extraordinary. It's a little spooky, actually, because you literally walk in, take the stuff you want, put it in the thing, and leave. And it just Did you check you. to see if it charged the right amount? It charged the right amount. There's thousands of cameras on the ceiling um, and lights and all sorts of things happening. But you don't really, you don't even think about it. I mean, I was obviously studying it because I was so curious about how this was working. But how many I wouldn't be able to help workers myself. are around watching you do this? Very few. Hardly any. 
It, no, I'm, it, okay. that was the miraculous part. You walk in, it scans your thing, so it knows that you're you're who you are, and then you walk around doing all the stuff. It's clearly- I know, but even when I go to the grocery store and I scan every item myself, sometimes it messes up. It this doesn't thing, take something. It double now, charges something. I, like, I even got, when I'm sitting and putting it physically on the scanner right. myself. I don't know, but I think that they're catching it. They're catching it as you're taking it from the off the shelf. Well, then that's good that you're there by yourself and not with a couple of kids trying to stuff stuff in and out of the cart. So, <laughs> I would be I, um, yeah, I don't and, know. I, that's my yeah. only question with it. They have not perfected the stuff that you have in the grocery store yourself when you're using the scanner going through all of it. Like, I think this is great news if they're better. A thousand than that. times more sophisticated than that whole situation. Hey, by the way, it also probably costs them a thousand times more to exactly. actually yeah. do it. How about Juul? Do you see yeah. It's reportedly planning to unveil a new version of its e-cigarettes to help keep its product uh, available here in the U.S. with all the backlash. Wall Street Journal reports that the company is going to present a locking vaporizer to federal regulators in May. It's aimed at curbing underage use. The device would link to a smartphone via uh, Bluetooth and only unlock after a, a user logs into an app uh, using a photo and a government-issued ID. Proves that they I don't even know how that 21. works either. Uh, again, my kids can hack into any one of my devices. They know all my passwords. They do? Well, that's yeah. a problem. I don't know my passwords. That's my problem. They know all of them. They use our devices. They go through and all those things. Like, okay, is, you can show an ID. But is it okay to write all your passwords down? No. <laughs> no. And make a photocopy? And it's not okay to make your password password. With the two S's as fives. I, I do combinations of my dogs and children's. Don't pr- say that out loud. You show your age. You really are. I'm sorry. Oh, what should I use? What should I? Should I generate my own password? You see, if he tells you, then people will know what his passwords are. It's a whole system. Go, go get like Dashlane Listen or one of these me. things when and I, make it up for you. I make them so complex that I get the highest. Security, the little bar stop goes, talk, okay, stop goes off the charts for how secure my passwords are. Okay, Bucky? All right. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, the coronavirus fallout for shippers. How is it affecting the busiest container port in North America? Factory workers are not coming back to the levels that were anticipated originally. And there are skeletal crews at the uh, ports as well. We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew, Q. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Closure of uh, factories in China due to the coronavirus is having a ripple effect across major U.S. ports, which themselves are vital economic hubs. In a few minutes, we're going to be talking to the executive director of the Port of Los Angeles. But we begin with Elon Mui in South Carolina this morning at the Port of Charleston. Good morning to you. Good morning, Andrew. We're already, there are trucks that are loading and unloading refrigerated containers. There are about 210,000 containers that arrive at this port 
from China every single week. They take about a month to get here from overseas, and officials say they expect the impact of the coronavirus to really start making a difference here over the next week or so, because that's when all of that cargo that should have left China but didn't would have been arriving here. Now, we already are hearing some reports of blank sailings. Those are ships that are coming with little to no cargo. And all of that is threatening to dampen what has so far been a South Carolina economic success story. So the unemployment rate here is 2.9 percent. It's the lowest in the entire country. Driving that job growth has been advanced manufacturing. That's autos, planes, and tires. Those are all industries that rely heavily on the port of Charleston, not only to ship their products, but also to receive vital component parts in their manufacturing process. So officials here say that they are hoping for a snapback once production gets back up to speed in China. But guys, now with the coronavirus spreading throughout Europe as well, Germany is South Carolina's second largest trading partner. So everyone here is taking a sort of wait-and-see approach. Elon, thank you very much. Elon Mui. Let's talk right now about the port impact on the West Coast. For that, we're joined by Gene Soroka. He's executive director of the Port of Los Angeles. This is the busiest container port in North America. And right now it's estimating that its cargo volume for this month will drop by 25 percent over the year, year over year numbers when those final tally comes in. Gene, thank you right now for joining us. Thank you. Uh, that's a huge impact. Try and think about 25 percent decline. What, what are you seeing so far? What, what, what's the day by day on the ground there? 25 percent decline in the month of February. Our guidance for the first quarter is about a 15 percent decline. And what we're seeing right now is 40 canceled sailings from February 11th through April 1st. And Becky, that would amount to about 25% of our normal Hmm. ship calls during this time post-Lunar New Year. So when you say 15% impact for the full quarter, I'm assuming that's not because you anticipate things getting better in March, it's that things were better in January? We were down about 5.5% in January compared to an elevated level last year. You might remember that the tariffs that were scheduled for January 1st were bypassed, and we still saw a little bit of an uptick then. But, okay, if that's the case, if it was down 5% in January, down 25% in February, you are anticipating that things are going to pick up in March. No, not necessarily. We'll see uh, what these vessel sailings look like. But, again, 40 vessel sailings canceled from February 1 through, uh, from February 11 through April 1. What, uh, what are you hearing just in terms of things happening on the ground in China and other places where these ships are, are originating? Are, are things improving to this point? No, not really. Factory workers are not coming back to the levels that were anticipated originally. Lunar New Year was extended by about a week by the central government. And there are skeletal crews at the uh, ports as well. So what we're seeing are sailings collapsed from uh, the normal number down into a viable figure that can collect cargo from other Southeast Asia locations and then come over to the West. It sounds like there are problems along the entire path for that. Um, With the factory workers not coming back or only coming back in small portions at this point, even if you had goods at at the ports there, though, would those goods be able to be shipped if you've got a skeleton crew? By and large, yes. You have lived through this before. You were in Shanghai during the SARS outbreak. What, what did you see at that point? What were you doing there? Uh, I was in charge of sales for a company called American President Lines, covering a, a large swath of China. And at that time, we were all grounded. We weren't moving around domestically nor internationally. This appears to be much worse. Why? Because of the number of uh, folks who were infected and the lack of productivity that is taking place throughout the supply chain, starting with the manufacturing base. You think China is doing the right thing by trying to shut down some of the infected areas, or do you think it's more damaging? We, we need to curb the illness first and get people well. 
I think the look at the inventory levels that we've had here in the United States and those being worked down right now, we'll have to play catch up soon, but we've got to get people healthy and back on the job. What do you think as you start to hear about uh, outbreaks in other places, Italy, Iran, other, other uh, continents even? The next most concerning uh, information was yesterday with South Korea. Uh, Busan is a big hub for us as well. They move about 11 million container units a year. Any further outbreak uh, is going to be concerning for our industry. Have they shut down shipments coming out of South Korea yet? Not at this point. Do you anticipate that will be the case? It depends. There were over 970 cases diagnosed, according to this morning's news. We'll see where this path takes us. Gene, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll hope you come back and give us updates. Thank you. Coming up, Warren Buffett shares with Becky Quick advice he gets from his vice chairman, Charlie Munger. I learn from Charlie every time I talk to him. There is nobody better to talk to than Charlie at age 96. And Becky only on the podcast why she thinks Charlie and Warren's messages resonate with investors. People literally come from all over the world. Squawk Pod will be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC, and we're bringing you more of our conversation with Warren Buffett, the 89-year-old Berkshire Hathaway chairman and CEO, following the release of his annual letter to shareholders. I caught up with Becky Quick. Becky, I want to ask you about Charlie Munger. Who is he? Can you describe him for me? Yeah, he is Buffett's partner. He's the vice chairman at Berkshire Hathaway, and he and Warren have been together, oh, uh, probably more than 45 years. And they really value each other's opinion. They go back and forth. They laugh constantly when they're on the phone, but they really talk about things that interest them. And the things that interest them may not be the type of things that interest everybody. They get into some of the deepest problems facing finances, facing the world, facing health issues. Um, and they just really enjoy each other's companies. But they've been great partners for a very long time. And both these men are, you know, Warren is close to 90, Charlie's north of 90. Mm -hmm. Both of these men are incredibly active and involved in the investment decisions of Berkshire Hathaway every day. I think the older I get, the more I appreciate that wisdom comes with age. These guys are very wise and they are constantly learning. They are not people who get frozen with what they knew 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. They're both very curious and they both read incredible amounts of material and they're both constantly changing their opinions. And I, I think that's what's so unique. Warren's 89, Charlie's 96. Um, and yet 
every day they're reading things and I would guess that every day each of them is learning something. It's Charlie's opinions that I want to ask you about because uh-huh. he's so outspoken. <laughs> <laughs> well, recently he held court at something of a mini Berkshire at the annual shareholders meeting of the Daily Journal company. Mm-hmm. First, what is the Daily Journal? Company? The Daily Journal is a company that, that Charlie founded a, a long time ago. He took control of this and it, it really goes through the court cases, a lot of things that are in the LA courts. Um, it's an independent company. This is the one place that he really holds court by himself every year. You see him on stage at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting with Warren Buffett every May. But every February, he sits down and will take questions for hours um, from shareholders who come from all over the place. And it really is a mini Berkshire. These are people who want to get smarter. They care about investing. Um, They care about Charlie's opinions on law, about health, and just on life in general. I stumbled into a few mental tricks early in life, and I just used them over and over again. I take the high road because it's less crowded. Of course, that's a smart thing to do. And then I I was raised by people who thought it was a moral duty to be as rational as you could possibly make yourself. And that notion, which was just inherited basically from my genes and my surroundings, has served me enormously well. So people literally come from all over the world so that they get a chance to ask Charlie Munger a question there. I think it's striking if you think about the scene. He's in a wheelchair and he's there for two plus hours. He threw shade at Elon Musk. Yeah, that's not new for him. That's kind of a sport for, for Charlie. And I thought that his comments this year were actually much kinder than I've heard in the past. I would never buy it and I would never sell short. <laughs> I have a third comment. There was a man prominent in Los Angeles for years named Howard Amundsen. He once said something that I've taken to my heart. He said, never underestimate the man who overestimates himself. I think Elon Musk is peculiar and he may overestimate himself, but he may not be wrong all the time. So that honestly, I was I was at the shareholders meeting for the Daily Journal last year. It's an amazing place because he literally takes questions and will offer you such insight into life. And that's why the shareholders come. They they love it. One thing that he talked about at the shareholders meeting that generated a lot of news was about earnings and how companies report the money that they're making. Yeah, EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, appreciation. I don't like it when investment bankers talk about EBITDA which I would translate as bull earnings. That's what I love about Charlie. He calls it like he sees it. He does not mince words. He thinks that it's wrong. He says that that's not the best way of measuring it. And there are companies that play all kinds of games with this and that they take out all kinds of charges that they shouldn't be taking out. Um, he's pretty biblical when it comes to <laughs> how he views the world, what's right and what's wrong. And he has no questions about it. And that's one of the really endearing things about him is He does draw lines of black and white and what's okay and what's not. And you asked Warren Buffett his thoughts also about how companies are reporting how profitable they are and Mm -hmm. how that impacts the decisions that they make every day. Right. In in Warren's uh, annual letter to shareholders this year, he takes on this idea of gap earnings. And this is something he made a big deal about in his letter to shareholders last year as well because there were changes in the accounting standards for what you get to report in gap. And they have to report some of the earnings that come through from the companies that they hold stakes in, not the ones that they actually own outright. But it does make some massive swings in the numbers. I think they went from $4 billion in profit um, 
the year before for 2018. For 2019, it was $80 billion. And that was really just because of decline in the stock market in 2018 and a big surge up in the stock market in 2019. And to Warren's point, that's not fair. You still have to report these numbers, but you're basically telling shareholders, don't listen to them. Well, the, 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 yeah, it's two different principles. I mean, the, the gap numbers, which show us earning $80 billion, which is more than any company's ever earned in history. Uh, uh, and we explain why that, that really isn't the relevant statistic, because a lot of that was just the stock market going up, which now gets counted in our earnings. And Charlie was expressed expressing an opinion we both have. I mean, Charlie's the shy, reticent one, one of the pair, but uh, uh, Charlie is the best partner anybody could possibly have. We've been partners now for 60 years, and, and uh, you could not have a better partner. Uh, he, at 96, uh, a woman, since that meeting, actually, uh, in the last couple of weeks, a woman said to him, is it too... Mr. Munger, that you have eight children, and Charlie's reply was so far. <laughs> so, uh, Charlie, Charlie is very much <laughs> an active partner. We'll put it that way. <laughs> Next time I see him, I'll get an update on that to see what <laughs> so far. So yeah. okay, let us know what happens. With <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> you know, we watch pretty closely Charlie's shareholder meeting for the Daily Journal. Sure. We send cameras out. We watch it. I've been out myself. Do you watch that meeting too to see what he has? I I watched it. All on YouTube after, afterwards. But my sister and my, one of my good friends and my niece were all there. And, and no, I, I end up watching it, and I actually end up reading it usually, too. And, uh, I wouldn't miss it. But I don't go out for it. Was there anything he said that surprised you this time around? And I'm just looking through some of his... Actually, nothing Charlie says can surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything that enlightened you or changed your opinion on something? Maybe something... No, that but I learn from Charlie every time I talk to him. Charlie has the best 30-second mind in the world. So I can go to him with an, a new question, a new problem of any kind, and it goes through about eight filters in his mind in, in 10 seconds... And he gets to the essence of any problem. There is nobody better to talk to than Charlie at age 96. Is there anything you've talked to him about recently that you might be able to share? I don't know if you want to share the conversations you guys have privately, but anything where you've bounced something off of him? And he... Well, I bounce. I, 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 we, we talk about a lot of things. And we talk a lot of, uh, we talk particularly about things we don't know the answer to. And, and you know, we find the whole scene so interesting, whether it's politically or economically or the world. I mean, it, 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 it's incredibly interesting to us. And, and we're particularly interested in each other's view, although I think I'm more interested in his view than he is in mine. <laughs> and that, that would be a correct decision to make for somebody overhearing us. <laughs> What's uh, something you guys don't understand right now? Oh, we, we do not understand at all what the outcome will be uh, in a world where 13 trillion is being borrowed at less than zero. And even Greece went on short term. I think Greece, the 10 year bond is 1%, for example. And, and at the same time, in this country, we're having, under very good business and market conditions, we're having a 4.5% federal deficit and nobody is concerned in the least. And we're talking about massive new programs and so on. Everybody talks about how they'll pay for them, but they really, you know, the deficit's going to widen. So we don't know what world comes out of something where you start with extremely low interest rates and 
high rates of growth, and then what you do for stimulus later on. But the whole game, I mean, the game always unfolds differently than you expect. And, and that's what makes it so interesting. You know, the 10-year, speaking of these low rates, uh, just a little bit ago hit its lowest yield since July of 2016 this morning. I think it was 1.377 percent. We're back at 1.396 percent. But 10-year rates below 1.4 percent. Do you have anticipated this? It it makes no sense to lend money at 1.4 percent to the U.S. government when it's government policy to change to have 2 percent a year inflation. I mean, you've got you've got... The government is telling you we're going to give you 1.4% and tax you on it. And on the other hand, we're going to presumably devalue that money at 2% a year. Uh, So these are very unusual conditions. And uh, classical economics, it doesn't appear uh, that, you know, what do people do under such circumstances? Does everybody buy a mattress and stick their money under the mattress or what? And it particularly seems uh, unusual when the world is generally prosperous and, you know, but that's, the game is always changing, but it always looks logical in retrospect and it and it's always looks puzzling <laughs> prospectively, but there's always things to do that make sense too. Like what? Well, I hope that's what we're doing. <laughs> it's buying good businesses at decent prices, whether all of the businesses or parts of the businesses through the stock market. You know, you told me a year and a half ago, maybe longer, that when you went out to try and buy whole businesses right now, it just looks too expensive, which is why you started buying pieces of companies, more stocks, putting money in places like Apple. Is that still the case? Is it still a huge premium to try and buy a company outright? There's quite a premium, and part of the premium is because you can borrow so much money so cheap, uh, so cheaply in buying those businesses. Obviously, you can pay more for a a business if you can uh, borrow a very high percentage of the purchase price and of the future cash flow committed to it, and you can borrow at low rates with, with very little in the way of restrictions, uh, restrictive covenants or anything of the sort. I mean, that, that's going to bring higher prices, and the demand for that is huge, and people look at those rates on the 30-year or the 10-year, and they say to themselves, gee, I can't live on that, and so they, they stretch and buy poor credits. But that's, that's just part of the human cycle over time. And that, that leads to something else, and that leads to something else. In the end, if you own good businesses at the right price, you're going to do fine. You're often quoted as saying that you don't know who's skinny dipping until the tide goes out, who's swimming naked until yeah, the tide goes out, exactly. whatever it may be. You get the sense with a high tide right now that there's a lot of skinny dipping Well, it, we're certainly doing, we're allowing people to borrow money on much weaker terms than we were five or ten years ago. You couldn't borrow money at all there for a period of ten years ago. I mean, you literally, you could, Berkshire couldn't borrow money. I mean, the, 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 everything stopped. And uh, now we've, the pendulum has swung dramatically, and yet we still have, you know, we have very, very, very low rates. It, it, it's hard to believe that ten years or twenty years from now we will have a substantial continuation of negative interest rates. But I've already seen things I didn't think could happen. So who knows what could happen? That's what makes it interesting. That's the show for today. On our rundown tomorrow, venture capitalist Chamath Palihapitiya. You don't want to miss this. A former social media exec, Palihapitiya is now the chairman of Virgin Galactic, looking to the stars. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. 
Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Bullshit earnings. I don't know if you have to believe that. They keep bleeping on air. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod. We are on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, wherever you listen. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend to subscribe to. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.